A new era is upon us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders, and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present-day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Berman. I'm pausing for dramatic effect. How's it going, Edward? Good to have you, Jeff. Today, we have the fortune to host Jenna Louie. Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Ivory Innovations. Hi, Jenna. Where does this podcast find you? Hi, Edward. Hi, Jeff. I am in San Francisco, California. You look like you should already be in East Coast time. You look way too awake for <laughs> 7, 10, 7, 11. I've been on three different uh, world time zones over the last week. So I was in uh, Southeast Asia for a personal trip, and then I came back to San Francisco, and then I went over to Sweden for a uh, offsite construction HUD delegation visit, uh, which was really interesting. Can talk about it more, but all of those places are about eight hours apart in time zone. And so, you know, I just exist <laughs> outside of time at the moment. Um, so who knows what time my body thinks it is. For the first time in a very long time, I wish I was sitting down so I could like take a, a rest. That sounds exhausting. <laughs> It was it was a lot, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I am excited to be San Francisco based for a few weeks, though, uh, before the next trip. I mean, that sounds to me like a good reason for an early tangent. I mean, Jenna, what's your secret? How do you pull through? What's your motivation to keep going uh, across time zones, fighting jet lag, fighting poor airline service? Oh, that's so funny. I mean, there are two things, right? So the, the purpose of the trips, one was a delayed honeymoon. And so highly motivated for that. And the other was uh, a really interesting trip to Sweden where we were touring a whole bunch of offsite factories, learning from the Swedish delegation about how they've really advanced their industry. Um, I think the, the smaller secret, though, is that I have a really good eye mask. And so I'm pretty able to sleep on planes and try to get onto the right time zone while I'm actually on the plane itself. Amazing. Low-tech, eye mask. Jenna, let's talk about housing innovation and would love to learn uh, a bit more if our listeners aren't familiar with Ivory Innovations. You guys are putting housing tech solutions into practice. How are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Tell us. Sure. So I'll give a brief background on Ivory Innovations. We're a nonprofit based in Salt Lake, Utah, uh, focused on catalyzing innovation and housing affordability. And so when we think about housing tech solutions and we think about housing affordability more generally, of course, there are a whole bunch of reasons to be focused on this space. As everyone who's listening to this podcast knows, there's a shortage of housing units across the country. Housing affordability is at all-time lows, depending on who you ask. And one of the things that we are really interested in is uh, finding ways to take the most innovative, most promising solutions that exist out in the market, whether they be 
nonprofit solutions, for-profit solutions, big organizations, small organizations, finding ways to identify those entrepreneurs and those organizations and supporting them. We think of ourselves as a do tank, so not so much a think tank. We know that there are a ton of researchers mm. in this space. There's a lot of focus on the problems that we have. You see that all day long on the news, right? You know, housing affordability, all-time lows, another headline. But we really think that there's not as much of a focus on the ways that we can get ourselves out of this crisis. There's not as much of a focus on the really smart, really innovative people that are working on novel solutions, right? So things that don't just address kind of the symptoms that we have as a country, but really get to some of the root causes. And so excited to dive into that a little bit more today. Fascinating. A do tank. That's the first time I hear that term. And I think... You, you can officially coin it. I haven't decided whether I want to steal that or not because yeah. it's really easy to misunderstand that. Yeah, I think the the key part to what we're doing, which has been really fun, is you know, our organization is about five years old. And so we started as a little bit more of, I wouldn't say a think tank, but a more traditional kind of research and innovation arm, right? What, what are the innovators out there? What are they doing? Okay, how do we identify them? How do we support them? Over the last five years, we've really grown into a little bit more of a, a full service organization, I would say. And so actually about a, about two years ago, we stood up um, a specific kind of organization or specific kind of um, foundation that allows us to actually put innovation into practice through an operating foundation. And so we're actually building capital A affordable units in Utah. And to the extent possible, we're trying to bring the innovators that we've found from across the country back to Utah, whether it's construction innovations, whether it's financing innovations, whether it's making some of those policy changes reality in our home state. And so I would say that's the aspect that really, I think, sets us apart as a quote unquote do tank, right? It's we don't want to just think about these solutions. We don't want to just say we're supporting them. We want to actually put our money where our mouth is. And so of course, we, you know, there are no silver bullets here. We haven't completely cracked the code, but to the extent possible, we're really trying to figure that out. So there's a lot to unpack there. And the first thing I think our listeners would be interested in is how you're funded. So we're funded as a nonprofit. We have a variety of uh, financial sponsors. If you're curious, you can find them on ivoryinnovations.org. Um, and we're extremely grateful to them. But I would say the most important part of understanding our backstory is that uh, the largest uh, home builder in Utah is a company named Ivory Homes. It's a privately owned, family owned company. And the Ivory family is extremely philanthropically minded. And so about five years ago, the Ivory family got us started. You're overhearing Ivory Innovations, Ivory Homes, the Ivory family. And with their seed funding and the connection to the home building company, that's how we got you know, our focus on housing affordability. It's how we started thinking nationally. Of course, the Ivories build what they can in Utah, right? They're addressing the housing crisis locally, but there's a real national question here. And the best innovations, we would think, come from all parts of the country, not just from the Mountain West. And so that is how we got started uh, with our uh, funding. That's how we got started as a nonprofit. And since we've grown, we've added uh, backers and sponsors. And I mean, if you're curious and you like what you're hearing in this podcast, we're always we're always happy to find new partners, too. That's interesting. OK, so it started as an outgrowth from Ivory Homes, which is obviously a for-profit home builder. Mm -hmm. They recognized a need to fund innovations in specifically uh, affordable innovations for single family homes for housing, period. Mm -hmm. They provided the seed capital. You have donors from across the spectrum that then fund your organization. And then what you do is now you find opportunities to develop affordable housing using innovations from across the spectrum, whether it's contact, prop tech, fintech, et cetera. 
So I think our listeners would also love to hear an example of some of the technologies that you're using. And specifically, because this is a question that I have myself, how you reconcile all these different organizations while you're building. And to put a finer point on it, when you're building anything, whether it is a an apartment, single family home, a multifamily building, or an office building, industrial park, whatever, there's always complexity because of the number of subcontractors that are going to be operating at any given time. And then you layer onto that potentially behavior changing technology, software, or innovation. And you have a lot of disruption that is, and not great disruption that could potentially rear its head. So can you talk through that and talk through how you manage that and, and talk through, so I know I just gave you a lot, so go. Perfect. Yeah, I think one quick thing that I'll say is that Ivory is more than just building affordable units. And so we have four different program areas and I won't cover them deeply, but one of them is Ivory Prize, which I'm sure we'll get into. One of them is Hack a House, which is a student-focused initiative. One of them is to host events, right? So you bring all the right people together, you think cross-sector collaboration, et cetera. And then this last piece, right, which really builds on the other three and the knowledge we've gained is to put some of these innovations into practice in those affordable units that we build. I didn't want to cut ourselves short on um, Ivory's programming. More broadly, the question that you had, Jeff, right, of, well, how do you think about actually putting some of these solutions into practice, right? There are, you know, the what the path to innovation is littered with the graveyard of startups that have tried to change construction and have had a really hard time doing it. And so one of the ways that we look at this, right, you can't ignore the, the affordability focus of our organization. So when we really think about, well, what are we going to use in our projects? We really think, well, what is the potential to cut costs here? And to what extent, right? Or what is the potential to save time? And there are tons of organizations that we've looked at, and I think they're doing great things, but they're also candidly not a fit for what we do, right? Building affordable units is one of the hardest things out there. Your capital stacks are particularly complex. You know, there's a lot of sometimes neighborhood pushback, right? I don't, I don't want to see these units in, you know, in my part of the city. And so when we think about, well, what can we do to make things faster, make things cheaper? We are really kind of looking at a holistic mindset. We're not so much looking on the margin, right? So we're not looking for ways to bring in seven different tech providers at different parts of the construction process and, and kind of make marginal improvements. We're really looking for whole scale change. So one of the things I would point to is, uh, is offsite construction, which I'd mentioned a little bit at the beginning uh, in this visit to Sweden. What can we do to think about actually building differently, right? And so can you build more of these components, possibly even the full unit in an offsite factory, and then bring that to your job site? That's something that we're looking at for one of our upcoming projects. There are other methods, you know, even something as simple as permitting. One of our winners this year for the Ivory Prize is a group called Permit Flow. And their whole idea is that permits are an essential and inescapable part of this process, right? Of the building process, as much as you would like to, you likely cannot build, nor should you build, you know, something with without getting municipal supervision and saying, yep, this looks safe, this looks right. And so for something as standardized as that, we think that's an opportunity for us to better think about how can we cut timelines without introducing a ton of different vendors and a ton of different complexity for our subs, right? Of, okay, we have a permitting team. How can we equip them with software that's going to help them do their jobs better, faster, more reliably? And so I don't know if, if that's what you're thinking about, Jeff, but we really think carefully about how we introduce innovation into our organization. We also think really carefully about where's the right point in the process, right? Not some of the maybe slight marginal things during the build, but possibly before how you design, how you manufacture, if you're going to do it offsite and how you permit. So can you give some examples of companies or innovations that you've, that you've actually used in practice? 
So ISUSU is one of the organizations that we are really excited to have put into practice in some of our uh, in some of our buildings and projects, right? Many of your listeners are going to be familiar with this organization. How do you make rental history easier and more accessible for credit bureaus to get renters credit for the payments they've been making just the same way that mortgage holders get credit for the mortgage payments they make on time? And so I won't say too much more about that, but you know that's really a win-win-win, right? This is a tech solution that makes sense for the customers that it's serving, both on the renter side as well as on the landlord side, right? You have better and more qualified renters, and it's a, a perk that you can have as a landlord. An organization that we haven't yet deployed, but I hope we do in Utah, is one called Outreach Grid. So this is a little bit different. This is a uh, an organization, a tech organization that focuses on homeless services. And so maybe a lot of people look at the kind of homeless service provider space and they think, dang, that's complicated. And it doesn't sound like a market that I would want to enter. But Outreach Grid has done something really interesting, which is take the simple question of, are there beds available in a shelter? Right. Something that, you know, you think of a hotel analogy, right? Are there rooms available in my building? And they've digitized it. And it may surprise people or it may not surprise people, but most homeless shelters don't have a digital system for what they're doing, right? And so if you are out on the street, you are an outreach worker, right? And you're saying, okay, I found someone, um, you know, I'm doing my daily walk, I'm doing my daily chat. And you come up to them and this person says, hey, I'm ready for a shelter bed, right? I've been, you know, there's a lot that's happened. That's a really unique moment because, um, you know, many of us know it can be hard to to get people into shelter, right? It, it's not always something that people want. And in some cities across the country, you can compel people, but most of the time you can't. And so when you have someone who's ready to go into a shelter, that's a really good opportunity that you don't want to miss. And what that outreach worker has to do most of the time is call a whole bunch of different shelters and ask, do you have a bed available? So you're standing here on the street hoping to help this person who you've checked in with for months, finally they say they're ready. And you are standing here like in a pre-internet era trying to call around to, you know, 10, 12 different shelters trying to see if they have a bed. And most of the shelters are going to say, hey, we don't know. You know, we haven't had checkout yet. Um, you know, call us back in two hours. Hey, we have a bed, but it's not going to be available for a week. Is that going to work? I know you're standing there as the, as the outreach worker saying, absolutely not. That doesn't work. I'm hoping to get this person immediate availability. I'm hoping to give them an answer right now. I'm standing here calling you. And so Outreach Grid is doing something which digitizes that process. And it sounds so common sense, at least to me, from the outside, right? We, we have incredible power with uh, with digitization. How do we bring that into a space that has not benefited uh, necessarily from that kind of software? And so I look at that and I think you know, this is a scalable tech product. I look at it from a city's perspective or from a homeless shelter's perspective, right? There's a ton of different players in that space and think, why would we not want to make this process faster? And I think about it from an end user benefit standpoint, right? The person who is, who's actually hoping to enter a shelter, right? How much more would you feel confident about where you're going if someone could say, great, it took me about two minutes. I'm standing right here and I have an answer for you as opposed to let me stand in front of you and watch you call <laughs> 10 different shelters and get no answers. You know, that's not really generating uh, confidence. And so Something as simple as that, we're hoping to bring to the Salt Lake area as well. We haven't deployed it yet, but Tiffany Pang and her team are doing great things at Outreach. So yeah, I've, I've, I've heard about that, that company and I'm pretty fascinated by it because essentially it's, a, it's like a booking system for people that don't have homes. One of the things that I've, that I've noticed is 
when, when I was growing up, the traditional, the nomenclature used for people that did not have homes was not very friendly. And it has changed. And I've also noticed that many people that are on the street have cell phones and they might have the wherewithal to say like, oh, I can get on this outreach grid and, and essentially find my family a place to, to be until we can figure out how to get into some affordable housing. That's it. it that's a, that's a pretty big swing. When I've had time, I've, I've thought about the implications of, of a program like that. It's, and we don't have to go down the various utopian dystopian channels that that could, uh, that, that could follow. But how would you use a company like that in, from a, from an affordable housing perspective, or are you saying you take the data that outreach grid has and say like, here are potential residents that could, that could be in, uh, in the Ivory Innovations developments. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we think pretty holistically about what uh, what it means to bring innovation back to Utah. And so when I think about Outreach Grid, it's something as simple as we need to deploy this in our cities, right? We need to deploy, to deploy this in Utah because it is in so many ways a no-brainer. Um, the question, right, of, of what does it mean to kind of use or put that innovation into action, I would say that's a little bit more outstanding. Um, the way that you're describing, right? How could you empower people to actually make decisions for themselves, right? How can you cut some of the middlemen out here? Caseworkers are incredible. They do a lot of good work, right? They're connecting. If someone touches base with a caseworker before entering, for example, a shelter system, right? You're going to have a lot more support. You're going to have access to maybe finding a job, finding more permanent housing, right? Like all of the different things that caseworkers are good at. On the other hand, it takes time, right? And, and those people are limited. And so I hear you on how can we find efficiencies, um, thinking about the data usage there. I think maybe another organization I'll throw out is one called Housing Navigator Massachusetts, which is doing something very similar to what you just mentioned, Jeff, empowering people to find their own housing. And so Housing Navigator did also something very simple and very common sense, which is the state of Massachusetts compels uh, developers to build inclusionary uh, zoning units. So for anyone who's unfamiliar, Right. If I'm a market rate developer and I say, hey, I want to put up a hundred unit building, you know, somewhere in the city of Boston, the city of Boston or the state of Massachusetts might say, hey, decision makers. Such a noble mission, Isuzu, and uh, in particular outreach grid, I think, in terms of the forgotten populations of our society, at least in the U.S. First, renters. We have more renters now than ever. And if someone has been paying rent on time every month, there's no reason why that shouldn't be credited to their credit worthiness to request a loan in the future, to request a mortgage, or to just be taken equally as to someone that has been accumulating credit by having a mortgage or the traditional ways. Now, in terms of outreach grid, I mean, it's uh, I think I read a report recently that homelessness costs cities between thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year. So in terms of rehabilitating, reskilling, bringing them back to becoming productive members of society, or it's such a noble mission and, and something that is long overdue. The future of real estate is here. And by here, I mean at Blueprint in Las Vegas, Nevada, this upcoming September. Join Jeff, Zach, and I in the largest, most global gathering of industry innovators leading the charge in changing the built world from construction to transaction. Blueprint is the premier event for industry executives, real estate and construction tech startups, and VCs. Over 2,000 attendees, 
more than 750 startups and investors, 250 plus speakers from more than 50 countries will be represented in this year's conference. Join the Tangent team this September 11th to the 13th at the Venetian Hotel for three days of networking, learning, and ecosystem advancement. Tangent listeners get a $200 discount by going to blueprintvegas.com slash tangent. That's blueprintvegas.com slash tangent to get a $200 discount for this year's event. Hope to see y'all there. Shifting gears a little bit, we've mentioned Salt Lake City a lot. We've mentioned Utah a lot. I was fortunate enough to live in Salt Lake City for a couple of years during COVID when I stood up uh, neighbor.com's commercial business. And small world, I actually lived at Ivory Homes' building Ico Vista Station, which if anyone happens to be around Salt Lake or Draper, I recommend you to visit the jacuzzi because that's the biggest and best jacuzzi being on in my life. It looks like a swimming pool, but it's an actual jacuzzi. Anyway, that's a less relevant tangent to say, I want to talk about what's going on in Salt Lake and what's going on in other cities as well. What is it that it's enabling this innovation ecosystem and what are other cities out there that you've looked at that also have a investor innovator and founder friendly ecosystem to allow these solutions to be tested to be deployed and to be you know in, in a more holistic approach right like you said without aligning public policy tech companies and investors incentives everything in housing at an impactful scale is very hard or impossible so Tell us what's going on in Salt Lake City or what other cities are leading the way in housing innovation. Sure, that's a, a big question to make some you know, uh, proclamations about other cities around the country. But in Salt Lake, at the very least, I can say that you know, Utah has enjoyed immense amounts of prosperity over the last uh, you know, 20 years, right? We think about growing demographics. You know, there are a lot of people moving there. There are a lot of people coming of age there. You know, housing for a long time was relatively more affordable, although that has changed a little bit more recently. And more generally, I think there's a really tight partnership between civic organizations, right, nonprofits and kind of the public sector and the private sector. And so especially when we think about real estate, you know, one of my colleagues has said it really well that you know, Utah legislators understand that without housing, you cannot continue to have the economic engine of Utah work, right? For people to continue making money and doing well in Utah, they need places to live. And to have places to live, you need housing, right? As simple as that. And I think that sometimes that math, that conversation breaks a little bit in other parts of the country where, you know, maybe in California, some of the places where I live, people say, well, we don't necessarily want more people. We're doing fine. <laughs> and, and thankfully, that is not the conversation in Utah, as I understand it. And so in Salt Lake, you know, there are a whole number of different organizations. I won't do them justice to mention everyone here, but, you know, everything from a homelessness task force that's been stood up by, you know, by the mayor and, and uh, different players across the state. We also think about ideas like community land trusts. And so a really interesting one is the Utah Housing Preservation Fund, which is a little bit different. It's privately and publicly funded to think about how do you continue to maintain and um, and keep affordable units on the market, even when they aren't supported by, let's say, LIHTC um, or low-income housing tax credit subsidies. And so when those LIHTC units exit their LIHTC holding period, how do you make sure that the people who are living there continue to enjoy relatively lower rents? And the Utah Housing Preservation Fund uh, does that by taking those units um, kind of into the private market and then holding them in perpetuity. And so, you know, there are a number of different things 
that are going really well in Utah. There are also a number of questions that we still have to figure out. For example, how do we bring outreach grid <laughs> into, you know, into our ecosystem? When I think about other cities across the country, you know, one that I really want to call out is the city of Minneapolis and the city of St. Paul for some of the work they're doing. I think many of us are probably familiar with, you know, some of the events of 2020 and around George Floyd's murder and, and a lot of the racial reckoning that got kicked off across the country, much overdue. But Minneapolis has really been ahead of the curve on housing for a long time. And so even something as simple as the upzoning legislation that they passed um, pre-2020 and how that's kicked in, right? So making it possible to build more than just one unit in a single family home lot. I think it's up to four. So something like that, right, which is a policy change, has a whole carry-on effect uh, when we look at then the kinds of companies that can be started and the kinds of collaborations that continue. And so thinking about uh, innovators who are taking the opportunity of, okay, well, if if you can build more than one unit, you know, in this given plot of land, what does that look like? How do I take advantage of that opportunity? We've seen both nonprofits and for-profits work on that. And then more generally, just the opportunity to continue leading the way. Uh, when I think about offsite and some of the construction methods happening in Minneapolis, there's a lot taking place. Financing, there's a lot of really interesting uh, kind of pi private public opportunities taking place there. So I don't know, I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but Minneapolis is a city that I would say, you know, keep them on your radar. And then, I, I mean, so many other cities across the country, I would say, we're still figuring it out. San Francisco, where I live, definitely still figuring it out, even though there's no shortage of money. There's no shortage of people who are interested in the issue. There's no shortage of people meaning well, but it's, it's hard to crack and it takes a long time. LA, I would say similarly, New York, definitely going through some challenges right now, just with an influx of people, right? That stresses any system. Wait, well, hold on. I, I, I want to interrupt just for a second. When you say influx of people, mm -hmm. those cities are losing people. Oh, yeah. So in specifically in New York, and I um, don't have the most recent numbers, but there's been an influx of migrants specifically ah, that are taxing. Yes. The okay, so, so you're talking because, okay, so to, just to make sure that we're that we're setting the table correctly, because and I, I don't want to veer into politics, because I know that's dangerous ground. But the, the cities that you, you mentioned happen to all be blue, and they're losing economic drivers, and they're gaining not. Now, immigration it's interesting because immigration is obviously a net positive right like our our country wouldn't be our country without immigration anyone who says different doesn't know history but it's interesting though because the if you look at the policies of some of those cities like when when you when you said i i was trying to hold my tongue and i can't when you said that there's plenty of money in san francisco to do something about san francisco's become interesting to say the least sure and and it's it, it's like the policies that are put in place don't really enable the entrepreneurial class to focus on solution, not even to focus to to even dream about solutions because they're so mired in red tape that it's backwards and forwards. And I'm I don't I just I just took us on a tangent because that's what this podcast is called. But I'm curious how you think about that. When you're when you're dealing with these intractable problems, what but for public policy might be easier to to solve. I'm I'm very curious how how you think about that. 
Yeah. I was at a, a builder's conference recently and the um, lieutenant governor of California was being interviewed. So Elena Kulinakis, I believe her name is. And she comes from a developer's family. Um, her dad's a developer working around the Sacramento area. She, you know, she worked in the family business um, her whole life growing up before going into politics. And the moderator of the panel said something really interesting, which is, you know, we don't have a housing crisis in this country. We have a housing policy crisis because, you know, if we could build it, we would. And the lieutenant governor, you didn't didn't really pick it up necessarily, but she didn't disagree. And I think, Jeff, you're hitting on it exactly, which is there are a lot of ways that the private market would like to meet these challenges. But yeah, policy makes it hard. And so, yeah, again, no silver bullets. Um, but I do think going back to Edward's original question, right, there are some cities that are that seem to have slightly better alignment for whatever reason than others when it comes to how do we all collectively work together, right? Just because you pass policy doesn't mean that people build the units either, always. And we've seen that a little bit with SB9 across California, right? And so upzoning across the state, it's a complicated uh, kind of measure, right? It's not it's not super easy. Not anyone can just build a, an SB9 unit. On the other hand, uptick has been slow. Um, slower than expected, perhaps, from the state. And so you look at this, right, of how do you all kind of march and lockstep together, or at least get on the same page? That's something we really try to do in Salt Lake, right, is bring the public and private together, you know, a red city, <laughs> although it's probably the most blue in Utah. But yeah, there are a ton of different examples across the country. We've been on the phone with the um, the planning team in Houston, which is a really interesting one, because Houston does not have traditional zoning, and they're doing some really cool things around how do you cut red tape, how you think about financing, uh, but a lot of different examples across the country to look at for sure. I mean, I'm just going to make a small parenthesis here. These blue and red denominations or descriptions, we're 330 million people in the United States. We're not going to get into politics, but there's dark blue, there's light blue, there's purple. There's like, I mean, it's just too easy for the media to describe and summarize and bucket everyone into blue and red when, you know, we should all just be, you know, purple working together. And I don't, that sounds too kumbaya. No, so so you're you're not wrong about the population, but you are incorrect about the action, the leaders, because look what look look what happens. And part of this is a media problem, but the loudest voices on both sides, the crazy on the right, the crazy on the left. When you think of either either spectrum, either side of the spectrum, sorry, that's what you think of, because those are the people, and and then those voices, the loudest ones are rising. And then policy ends up getting informed by ridiculousness rather than common sense purple, as you so eloquently put it. I, I think that's, that's exactly the right way to think. I think you're spot on. However, I think that has to do a lot, you know, I wouldn't say everything, but probably the majority of it to the rise of ad-driven social media that the incentives are, you know, engagement, outreach. So we got the the fringe on each side just being elevated uh, to the mainstream media. However, I wanted to move on to the next topic, not before I mentioned a little Salt Lake City history. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jenna, but, uh, you know, most people that have heard of Salt Lake City was because of the Olympics back in 2002, which kind of catalyzed or kicked off this mo modernization that paired with Adobe's headquarters being located there, Adobe, the, the creator of Photoshop. So I'm just thinking we have the soccer world cup, uh, the men's soccer world cup coming in 2026 out of which we have 16 cities hosting, hosting in North America. And I'm actually bullish on a couple of them. First Monterey in Mexico, which, you know, I think is really gaining from 
the reshoring or nearshoring away from China's manufacturing dependency, the U.S. depending on China for all their manufacturing needs. And, you know, Tesla opened a factory in Monterey and they have absolutely great uh, talent coming out of the tech Tecnológico de Monterrey. And it's next to the U.S., you know, so I think Monterey will become of age if it already hasn't for the World Cup, maybe, even though it's a pretty big city in Mexico already. I'm also looking at Kansas City. Who knows? That's uh, that's my outlier there that uh, maybe it's going to use this opportunity and this attention and this investment to really catapult itself into an innovation hub. Let's talk a bit about academia, the role of academia in your life, and also how can academia influence housing innovation. Um, I mean, you, uh, from uh, Punahu School in Hawaii to Harvard undergrad to Stanford MBA, Jenna, how can academia help improve housing affordability and, and city life? Wow. I mean, that's a that's a big question, but I think the role of researchers is really essential, right? As much as I talked about us being a do tank at Ivory, we couldn't do what we do without some of the great research that universities, think tanks are putting out. You want to start with data before you go about trying to change things. You want to be grounded in reality. Maybe the best, you know, or one of the best kind of newer organizations that we've seen is the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. And so this was started by Matthew Desmond, who uh, wrote a really powerful book. If you haven't read it, it's about evictions in Milwaukee. It takes a really kind of anthropological view of what is it like for some of these tenants and what is it like for some of these landlords, you know, that are just trying to make things work and make ends meet um, as they go about their lives. And so he started a group called the Eviction Lab based at Princeton, and they do some really incredible research when it comes to eviction filings, eviction data. It's something that wasn't available at a national level before Matthew Desmond and his team started compiling things. So back to that original question, right? What can academia do? I mean, there's so much that academia does, and there's so much more that I think we can continue to do, particularly when it comes to what are the what are the areas of research or what are the pockets of data that aren't yet touched, right? There's a lot of focus on here are housing prices and here's what renters are paying and here's how people are burdened. But some of the really nitty gritty things, right? What are eviction filings up or down across the nation? Are they up or down across a given state? That wasn't always possible to answer about, you know, five, 10 years ago and now it is. And so how can we find more ways to look for pockets of data like that, that really do have an incredibly powerful policy and kind of entrepreneurship implications and continue to work with academics to bring that online. It all starts with research and data, huh? If we we start off with the wrong data or, you know, like we in, in tech, we'll want to move fast and break things. But if we move fast in the wrong direction, or we can also move fast in a zigzag instead of a straight line, I think we actually have to slow down when we're starting and gather the right data and make sure we're starting off with the right assumptions. Homeownership as a goal. Jenna, what's wrong with renting forever? Should homeownership still be the main goal that we're trying to achieve when we're thinking about housing innovation, housing solutions, and, and providing housing? You know, just thinking about the the work arrangements now in terms of hybrid or remote work, thinking about the cost of housing uh, near the main work hubs, but it's just not attainable. Thinking about where housing is located and making people drive and commute you know, to the job, meaning you need a car to even consider having a job in many, many places. Should homeownership still be the goal? Is homeownership an attainable goal for most? Or can we find other investments while people rent so they can build wealth? What's your take? I, the last piece of where you're going, right? Can we find other opportunities for people to build wealth? I think that's the crux of why we talk about homeownership, right? 
do people want to own a home for 30 years and pay off their mortgage and, you know, live there happily ever after? Maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> that seems like a fairly dated perspective, you know, uh, in the way that people change jobs very frequently now, people may also want to change where they live. On the other hand, you know, imagine if you didn't earn a salary regularly until you'd been in that job for a long time, right? There, I'm sure there's some more eloquent analogy for um, ownership is, is predominantly the way that people in the United States build wealth. It's one of the uh, you know largest uh, measures of you know how prosperity happens, right? And so until we find a way to adjust that or find alternative methods to enable people to build wealth, it's really hard to say we shouldn't strive for home ownership. Of course, there are entrepreneurs that are working on well, how do you make renting more lucrative, right? So Isuzu is working on uh, reporting rental payment history. There are other startups um, that are working on, you know, how do you how do you actually build wealth for the renters themselves as they are paying, right? So it's not necessarily equity, um, but it may be something like equity that people can build. So I'm really excited about solutions like that because it breaks us out of this kind of dichotomy of only focusing on either those who have homeownership or those who don't. Right over time, the homeownership rate in the U.S. since it's started being tracked, right, has never really been different than about 60 to 65 percent. And so you look at that and you think, well, that's, you know, it's pretty good. It's almost two thirds of the country. Then you think, wow, one out of three people is completely shut out of this market and maybe forever. There are going to be some people who are forever renters. And that really sucks, right? How are we leaving people, some of the most vulnerable people, vulnerable people in the country, some people who work really hard, who are doing everything right, just like the people who use Isuzu, but are getting no benefit. And so I think some of the, the trends you're mentioning, Edward, right, are really important. They're really interesting. They're also, um, you know, remote work, et cetera, et cetera, can be uh, pretty limited to the upper class. And so when I think about what does homeownership mean, right, it's how do we think kind of holistically of, well, what do our cities look like, right? Can, uh, can we build enough housing that people have options, um, whether they want to rent or own? You know, and then more broadly, how can we think of different wealth generation strategies that don't rely on just a piece of assets, uh, you know, an asset that you own appreciating over time over 30 years? Yeah, there's a company called Acre Homes that are, are you familiar with them? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So so they're they're doing they're doing something. And right now they're focused on the higher end, but there's no reason why their program couldn't run the gamut from high end to low end. And it's essentially a, a financing mechanism that opens home ownership or something simulating home ownership for the rest of Americans who don't have access like like you like you say. But I do want to mention one thing because yeah, I'm a venture capitalist. Zach, uh, our our frequent participant, is also a venture capitalist, and there is a a, a difference between companies that are doing well and companies that have a potential to make a venture return. Some of the companies that you've mentioned, I think are going to find it very difficult to actually return investors' money. And so the challenge is at its core, from my perspective, is a market challenge. Because if you say like what you're doing right now, you if, if I'm correct, and if I'm remembering correctly, because I'm, I'm, I've got addled dad brain, you're not-for-profit, correct? That's right. So you're not focused on the return or generation of, of, of profit. You just have to make sure that your organization has enough funding to remain viable. But a company that takes money from venture capitalists with the hope of generating a return not only needs to remain viable, but they need to become profitable. 
And a number of these companies that are that are engaged in, in this area of the market are finding it increasingly difficult, especially given the changes in the funding environment that we're that we that we find ourselves in, to be able to do just that. And so the problem is compounded by the fact that either this is going to be something that has a so social justice utilitarian bent and and funding source, or the companies that have raised money from venture capitalists are going to have to figure out how they're actually taking the strategy of doing well by doing good and actually making money. And I think that's going to I think that's going to be a, a challenge. But this is this is all important work. I think just to tag onto that briefly, I couldn't agree more, you know, and the type of funding you take as an entrepreneur, as an innovator is, is probably the most important decision you make, you know, along with who you hire and what problem you're tackling, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the pieces that I've been really curious about is how do we find different pockets of money that can fund organizations at the right stage, right? So when you're really early, it, would it be possible to take slightly, you know, more philanthropic money, uh, money with slightly less pressure? And then as you scale, right, start taking VC or growth equity money, because you have a business model, you have more of a proven record, right? You have a sense of how you're going to make money, how you're going to make profit. And so something that I've been really curious about is, right, how can we get more family offices across the country? Because at Ivory Innovations, sometimes we act a little bit as a family office, even though we're incorporated as a nonprofit because of this connection to the Ivories and the uh, Ivory Homes. How do we get more families who are interested in this kind of work and who have a little bit more of concessionary capital to join us on this journey? Um, and I think, Jeff, exactly to your point, it's challenging, right? If this were easy, <laughs> maybe we would have solved housing by now, but but it's really, really hard. Um, and, and finding ways to thread that needle among all of the different challenges is one of the things that gets me up in the morning because you know there's a lot of impact to be made here if we can find some of the right mechanisms and means and people at the right time, right place. I definitely think, especially in the space that we're in, because, you know, we, we're dealing with so many moving parts and different timelines than, you know, just building uh, typical software for other industries. Like uh, Jenna said, maybe that depends the stage, depends the solution, the stage of the company or the solution that they're working on. Maybe venture capital isn't the right fit for that stage or that moment, right? I mean, in terms of aligning incentives, we've seen a lot of companies that are now coming up with creative or, or different ways of, of funding themselves, uh, you know, finding folks that have capital that have their incentives aligned. I mean, what comes to mind, which I, I still don't have an answer for is, uh, for example, OpenAI starting as a nonprofit raising billions of dollars and then all of a sudden transitioning to a full-on for-profit company. I'm not uh, saying that's that's the way to go for for people in, in housing innovation, but, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to see all these new ways of funding. Um, I think we, you know, another, another thing we've learned is that SPACs, you know, I, I don't know if just the nature of the 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 types of investors or the types of companies that it has attracted, you know, hasn't been the best. Uh, you know, the just the the best for long term impact. You know, uh, or, or solving problems. But um, yeah, I think it, I encourage entrepreneurs and and founders to not just think of of VC and and VC is great for many things. VC has unlocked tremendous innovation tremendous progress for so many but uh it's it's it might not be the best you know type of entity type of investment for for some companies last but not least jenna tangent is giving you a collaboration superpower okay so if you could choose a historical figure to partner and collaborate with any person dead or alive 
who would it be and why? Wow. Oh man, there are so many people to choose from. <laughs> I don't know if I have a specific person who is an answer, but I would say, you know, great statesmen, great states people, perhaps uh, across time. You know, we talk about these figures, you know, the founding fathers in the United States, you know, Roman emperors, like people who had just real power to do great things, uh, you know, for their countries. I would say those are the kinds of people that I would look to in our current housing situation to make a big difference. Perhaps I do have an answer as I as I say this. Um, Lee Kuan Yew was the founder and one of the early states people in Singapore. And I just got back from a trip there. And the way that Singapore treats housing as a country is absolutely worth looking into if the listeners on this podcast are not familiar. It is very interesting. They guarantee housing for every citizen um, almost effectively. They're building things, uh, you know, you can choose your unit three years ahead of moving into it. You go to effectively what is the U.S.'s equivalent of HUD. You choose a unit, they build it offsite for you, and they deliver it three years later, and they hand you the keys for a deposit of $1,000, and then you end up making your down payment when you move in. They're guaranteeing mortgages at 2.5%. There's just a lot there that's really interesting. Again, would be really hard for uh, you know a country that's bigger <laughs> than Singapore to do, but when I think about someone who is really focused on- And not homogenous. That's right. That's right. Well, in Singapore, yeah, Singapore is just a really interesting place. Um, but when I think about someone who at the very start of their country uh, was thinking, what can I do to do right by people and make sure that we are a prosperous nation and saw housing really is one of the centers of that uh, set of policies. I think that's the kind of conversation I would love to have in the United States right now, where housing really is the central focus of how we together move forward and continue to drive economic prosperity, right? We're, we all we all want that. And it's a question of how do we achieve it? And I think we need to look to a great leader right now. Love that. Lee Kuan Yew, Prime Minister, first Prime Minister of Singapore from 1959 to 1990. Very cool. We don't have our history, our resident history expert today, Zach Ahrens, but uh, I love that answer. Jenna, where can listeners learn more about Ivory Innovations and connect with you? Yeah, you can learn more about us at ivoryinnovations.org. And you can send us a note. Uh, I'm Jenna at ivoryinnovations.org. If you want to reach out, we'd love to hear from you. Jenna Louie, Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Ivory Innovations. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is edited by Daniel Mora and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning. 